My name is Joe, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm lazy. I'm a lazy guy. Some of you might be surprised by that. I hope some of you are surprised by that. I recognize this is not a great characteristic to admit to a room full of people that collectively pay my salary, but it's true. I'm lazy. I don't like to work. Back when I was a kid, I shirked my chores on the farm at every opportunity. I would much rather climb trees or play baseball or read books than help out on the farm. My older brother, he was the ideal farm kid. He got up eagerly at the crack of dawn to help with the milking and the feeding before school. I didn't have a choice. I had to get up as well, but I had to be coerced. When I was 13 or 14, I put up such a stink about getting up at 5 a.m. with the rest of the family that eventually my parents agreed to let me sleep in until 6. I know. Hard life. <clears throat> I was, whenever everyone else would leave for the, for the barn, I would stay in bed, quite content, and I got very good at just turning off my alarm and staying asleep. Um, so good at that and that my dad eventually wired up a phone ringer in my bedroom, just the ringer part, um, so that, not the handset, so that I had to actually get out of bed and go down the stairs in the farmhouse and pick up the phone and downstairs and hang it up. So he knew that I was out of bed. This was an effective way to get me up. Not so good for our relationship, still, but effective. At school, I usually got very good grades. School came easily to me. I was proud of, of being smart, but I knew, I knew that I really wasn't doing my best work most of the time. Having fun, impressing people, was more important than actually learning. So I daydreamed a lot. I cut corners when people weren't looking. I'm lazy. It wasn't until grade 10 that I found something that I really wanted to work hard for, the varsity basketball team. I did work hard. I busted my butt to make the team, to impress my teammates, to earn playing time. I worked hard for sure, but still not as hard as some people and not as hard as I could have. My friend Andy was shorter and slower than I was, but he was the ideal teammate. He was the hustle guy. He stayed after practice. He, wear, he wore ankle weights during drills. He just worked harder than anybody else. We called him Mr. P, Mr. Perfect, because that's how hard, that's how he tried to do everything. At the end of each practice, we would run wind sprints, 16s we called them, 16 times back and forth across the court in a minute. Killer. Some of you might have heard of suicides, running, running suicide sprints in gym class. 16s are like running two suicides back to back. And by our grade 12 year, Andy was running 17s instead of 16s. I know. I tried to keep up with him sometimes. I physically was in really good shape by that point, and I, I could do the 17s, but most of the time my legs would convince my brain that 16s were hard enough. There really wasn't any point to pushing myself even harder. I remember the very last basketball practice that I participated in. Andy was there at the end of practice. He was super pumped. We're going to make it to 17 one last time. Come on, let's, let's finish strong, guys. All of that stuff. I kept up the pace pretty well, but when Andy made that final turn to sprint back, make it 17, I stopped at 16. I could have done it, but I was tired. 16 was good enough. I'm lazy. Funny how these things stick with you. 25 years later, I can still see the disappointment on Andy's face because I didn't, I didn't do all those motivational sports posters you're supposed to do. 
I didn't leave it all on the floor. I didn't have the heart of a champion. I came up short. I could give lots of examples of my laziness, from skipping university classes to choosing a comfortable office career to spending most of my 20s and 30s avoiding exercise. I know I'm a nice guy. I'm fairly relatable, reliable, but I like to be comfortable. Even when I do the right things, it's usually to impress people. Left to my own devices, I'm going to stay on my couch. I'm lazy. I'm serious. <laughs> You're all laughing, but I, this, is, this is how I feel. <laughs> this is a glimpse at my shadow self. Number five in our alternative orthodoxy series. The separate self is the major problem, not the shadow self, which only takes deeper forms of disguise. The shadow self is the parts of our story, our personality, that we keep in the shadows, the parts that we're ashamed of. We'll listen to Richard Rohr and friends. Carl Jung, I think, very helpfully described the shadow as that self which is there, but you don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. It's hidden in the shadows. It's, it's unacceptable to your public persona, mm -hmm. to your public image that you've projected to the world or even to your, well, that's even to yourself. If you hold on to it too tight, you believe your own press. The whole key to the shadow self is it's revealed in the seeing, which is usually out of the corner of your eye. Mm -hmm. You can't get it directly. It has to be revealed in an unguarded moment. Or in the remark of a friend that says something, and you think, oh, am I really that way? <laughs> <laughs> some <laughs> forgive me this is really embarrassing because I've prided myself on being clean but Elias who helps me at the house you know he said to me a few days ago have you taken a bath recently <laughs> I said do I smell I said I, uh, are you do I really and I whiffed under my arm because of all these meds I'm on I actually do have some odors, I guess, but my <laughs> nose is dead. I don't smell anything. So I, I made him promise to keep telling you. If I, These are if the that gifts was of community. Yeah. Smell, no one wants to think they're smelly. Isn't yeah. that wonderful? It isn't really a moral evil to be smelly. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's shadow. It's just I'm an inferior person if I stink. <laughs> so so you have permission to. If I smell, let me know. <laughs> we put all kinds of judgments and comparisons onto our shadow selves. On the basketball team, I thought I worked pretty hard, and I did. Countless hours of practice, three years of learning skills and strategy and teamwork, and it left a huge mark on me. It was a significant transformation of my teenage years. But my transformation, my effort, paled in comparison to Andy. He was Mr. Perfect, I was Mr. Good Enough. He was a good friend, he didn't make a big deal about it, but his light revealed the part of me that I wanted to keep in the shadow, to hide from others and also from myself. I talked last week about morality and religion. The goal of religion is mostly about cleaning up our shadows bringing them within the acceptable limits. If you stink, take a bath. 
If you're lazy, learn to work harder. God helps those who help themselves. Get that sin stench off of you. Dress up, put on your best outfit for church, behave yourself like a good Christian should. And that's all well and good. Right behavior matters. I need someone to tell me when I stink. Being on the team with Mr. Perfect motivated me to become a pretty decent basketball player at the time. We need rules and guidelines and reinforcement and role models to help us get our act together. But there are limits to how far that gets us. We all get tired. We all stink. And soon enough, at some point for all of us, the game becomes about pretending that we don't stink, about spritzing Axe body spray on ourselves instead of taking a shower, about cutting corners when nobody's watching. We clean up on the outside without actually changing what's on the inside. Or actually, as this tenant describes, we disguise the shadow self. We bury it deeper and deeper so that we're hiding eventually even from ourselves. The things we hide in the shadows are driven by shame. I'm guessing you wouldn't have too much trouble coming up with a list of things in your own shadow. thought about handing out paper this morning and asking everybody to write down some things that are in, in your shadow, but that felt a little risky and heavy for a public space. My, my anxiety level goes up even thinking about that exercise. Our shadow selves can create lots of problems if we just leave them there. So we will talk in a minute about what to do with our shadows. But first, the separate self piece. Richard Rohr describes the separate self as the self that really believes in its individuality. I experience my body, my body as being over here, yours is sitting over there, that I am me and you are you. That seems like a pretty basic truth of the universe, hey? You are you and I am me. We are separate entities with distinct lives and personalities and strong boundaries between us. Good fences make good neighbors, all of that. And that's true to a certain extent, but maybe not as much as we might think. My baby Elliot is almost six months old. He's pretty dependent at this stage of life. I'm told that most babies don't even realize that they are separate individuals until sometimes around, sometime around this time, six or seven months. Before that, I guess they still see themselves as just part of their mother, or maybe they just don't think about the distinction between them. I don't know what's going on in babies' brains, but I can see that happening sometimes, like when there's a loud noise or a sibling jumps out of nowhere, Leo's wondering what's going on, and he, he's, are we okay? And he looks at mom, are we okay? And then he sees that she's smiling, she's not afraid, oh, okay, we're okay. It's not, it's not me yet for him, it's, it's all we. I'm sure he will get to the it's mine, it's mine, it's mine stage soon enough. Some of us stay there for a very long time. <laughs> that independence, that sense of self, that is part of human development. It's a learned behavior kind of thing. Rohr says that, that is, that's important. That's a big part of the work of the first half of life. We develop our identity. We build our house, the sense of self that we can then live out of in the second half of life. And not all of us get there. But the sec separate self is something that's developed. And that's generally a good thing. But it's also not the whole story of who we are. We are individuals, but we are part of something larger. Rob Bell talks about this with the metaphor of traffic. Sorry I'm late. Traffic was really backed up on Circle Drive. I know it's not a huge problem in Saskatoon. Uh, Rob Bell lives in LA, so it's on his mind a lot. But it is getting to be more of an issue, right? Like there's more cars on the road. What are people doing here? 
more traffic everywhere. Twice a week I have to drive all the way across the city through traffic at rush hour. There's just so much traffic. Who exactly am I frustrated at? You can't be in traffic without being traffic. My car is taking up just as much space. I'm part of the congestion. I am traffic. Complaining about it, like I talk about it, like it's this other thing, but I'm part of the thing. It's that way with everything. All individuals are part of communities. All divisions take part within wholes. Maybe you've seen this meme floating around online. Libertarians are like house cats, convinced of their fierce independence, but utterly dependent on a system they don't understand or appreciate. Sorry to get all political, but we are all libertarians in that regard. We're all house cats. I wish my family was, wasn't like that. I wish, well, you know, my company did really poorly. We underproduced last quarter. I wish my church did more of this and less of this. No, I am my family. I am my company. I am my church. The separate self is the part of me that denies those connections that puts up walls between me and you and pretends, well, I'm alone on an island with my choices and their consequences. In Christian language, that is sin. The problem with the stuff that we hide in the shadows isn't that the flaws exist, but we sin and we let those separate us from the deeper truth of interconnection. Bree Stoner, one of the voices on the Another Name for Everything podcast, says, sin missing the mark would be when we live out of separateness, when we live in anti-reality, when we live in a way that denies our choices have consequences on the whole body of Christ, or that we're part of the whole body of Christ, and therefore we are accountable to the body of Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. We are connected. Apart from the vine, we can't do anything. So don't separate yourself from your source. Don't cut yourself off from other grapes on the vine. On my basketball team, I worked hard to contribute and pull my weight. But because I knew that Andy was out there being perfect, working harder than I did, I was jealous of him. That came in between us occasionally. Maybe I would take the shot instead of passing him the ball. Maybe I would step into the more critical role on defense instead of Andy doing this thing that I knew he did better than I could. Because I needed to show the coach what I can do. I needed to prove to everybody, prove to myself that I'm worth more than Mr. Perfect. Jealousy isn't good for a basketball team. It's probably even worse than a mild case of laziness. Even worse than that is contempt. I didn't work as hard as Andy, but some of those other guys, I worked way harder than, than Dirk. Dirk had more natural talent than me and Andy both, but he was way less committed. Dirk didn't come to summer practice sessions. Dirk didn't stay after practice to shoot free throws. Dirk was still out of shape halfway through the season. I couldn't trust him to know the plays and to be in the right spots at the right time. I definitely wasn't gonna pass the ball to him with the game on the line. It's hard to play as a team when I'm worried about being shown up by one teammate and being let down by another. And at the root of the issue, it wasn't with them. The issue was my self-image. It was my shadow, this self-perceived laziness. I was worried about my shadow, but the real threat to the team was the separation that I created. That's just high school basketball. Who cares? But I suspect that a similar thing is going on, and that's why my brother and I never talk to each other as adults. He works a lot harder than I do. I'm pretty sure that everybody knows that. I know that he thinks less of me because I don't share his work ethic. I'm convinced of that. 
so we don't talk. I keep my distance. Likewise, I have a low tolerance for people that I perceive to be lazy and unproductive, whether that's falling for stereotypes about certain groups and cultures or frustrations with people who do things differently than I do. Let me tell you, the world's a pretty lonely place when I look down on people who work too hard and I look down on those who don't work hard enough. That perceived flaw in myself can cut me off from the rest of the team. And again, it's the separation that's the real issue. I quoted Richard Rohr last week, the goal of Christian spirituality is not perfection, but union. The issue isn't how hard I work or don't work. We can overcome that together. The issue is that my fear of laziness, my insecurity around being seen as a lazy person, that comes between me and my teammates, between me and my brother. It causes me to hide from you or look down on you. Bree Stoner again. The way that Cynthia Bourgeau and Ilya Delio, as students of Teilhard, talk about personhood as the goal, and what they mean by that is one through whom the whole resounds. That seems to be what this tenet is pointing us to, that the gift of wholeness and what Ilya says, whole making is our goal, that the waking up and showing up is us awakening to our full personhood, that we are we can be ones through whom the whole resounds and allow that resounding to soften the edges of, of our imperfection and allow us to just be imperfect because we are at the body of Christ. I think I'll just leave that up there for a while. The goal is personhood, to be one in whom the whole resounds. I hope you've had the chance to see a bell choir in person sometime. Maybe some of you have played the bells in a choir. It's very cool to watch. Every bell is a single note. And on their own, it's just one note. It doesn't really do very much. A single player can stand there for a long time without playing anything for measures and measures. But they're still with the music. They're still following along. They're still connected to all the other players around them so that they're ready to contribute their one note when the time is right. And yeah, the quality of the individual note matters. If a bell is out of tune, it's played not quite at the right moment, if it rattles or gives a thunk instead of a ring, it's not going to sound very good. But it's never about the individual. It's about the relationship between the individuals. It's about the whole piece of music resounding through each of the interconnected bells. And when that wholeness is the goal, that resonance, it works outwards with the choir and also inwards for the individual. As Bree said, softening the edges of our imperfections, making space for the divine impulse, the Christ in us. Some of us are learning about the medicine wheel from our indigenous neighbors. Again, that wholeness comes in the balance of the spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental aspects of our being. I think this is the same idea, finding what's within us in balance with what is beyond us in the circles of the seasons, the circles of the directions, the capital C community of which we are a part. That can be a little abstract. It's subtle. And I can't give you a list of here's the things to do because it's about perception, learning how to see. Bree Stoner again. Looking at this tenet allows us to see 
that we have to shift how we identify, that part of the, the path of transformation is to shift how we perceive ourselves so that we can begin to see ourselves as one through whom the whole resounds, mm. as connected to the whole, as inextricable from the whole. The problem isn't that we sin or make mistakes or miss the mark or have a shadow or have stuff going on or are in process. That's not the problem. But that essentially the problem is that we perceive ourselves as separate from each other and the whole. Yep, yep. And so it shifts the emphasis then. We're not trying to fix the issues. The machinery of being human isn't the issue but kind of update our, our operating system to just perceive differently. Cause the perception process is, seems to be what, what shifts or what needs yeah. to shift. This shift in perception from individuality towards wholeness and personhood invites us into what Rohr calls shadow work. And shadow work generally involves two movements acceptance and revelation. Acceptance is about abandoning the disguises, taking off our masks, bringing what we keep in the shadows out into the light. It's about acknowledging that I am lazy. I like to be comfortable. That's a big part of my personality. It's not the only part, but it's a pretty powerful motivation for me. As Richard pointed out, it's really hard to do that work on our own and a lot of shadow work is about letting others in, letting others get close enough so that our flaws are revealed to them and to us. It's letting others to get close enough to us to notice that we stink. And then often, amazingly, they are not all that surprised to find out that I stink. Even more amazingly, they don't reject me for stinking. Some of them might ask me to take a shower, and again, that's good for me, but more often than not, in the stinking, we find common ground and common grace. That's what's happening already this morning in my confession of laziness. For every negative thought out there, for somebody thinking, oh, we better keep an eye on this guy, make sure that he's earning his keep, for every negative thought, there's 25 of you going, oh yeah, me too, I have a story, something like that. Or, you know, we actually see that you work hard and we appreciate the work that you do, or even, you know, I'm glad that you are the way that you are. Because the flip side is, well, you might be lazy, but you're just comfortable. You're easy to be around. You're flexible. You're easy to work with. Or at least you say, hey, lazy man, you know, we like you anyway. And I know that that is out there. You don't have to say it to me because we've done this dance many times. I get up here and I say some kind of insecurity to you and you respond with affirmation and with your own confessions. That's how healthy and whole relationships work. We trust each other with parts of our shadows. It's good. It's not always perfect, but it's good. The other part is that shadow reveals light. Always. Where there is shadow, there is a source of light. And looking at the shadow straight on, we can figure out where the light is coming from. My lazy shadow directly has correlation to my giftedness. What I am expressing this morning as laziness is about this drive for comfort, for stability, for peace and harmony. So yeah, I often avoid the conflict. I avoid the struggle. I look for the easier route. And that actually does make me pretty good to be around. I've got lots of practice at making things comfortable. I know the easy way to do things because I've been looking at it for myself. I'm good at smoothing out the bumps, making relationships work easily. 
Some people find me to be solid and reliable, a calm, grounding place for them, because I have sought out that calm, grounding, comfortable space for myself. I know where the comfy seats are, I know how to find the good snacks, and I'm happy to share. So I'm lazy and I am hospitable. I'm full of empathy and grace. My shadow points to my light. I've been talking about myself too much this morning, but I hope that you can see this going on with your own shadows as well, whatever they might be. If you'd like to pursue this further for yourself, a lot of the Enneagram spirituality resources speak to this, this language of shadow work. I would love to share my books with you. And my relationship with my spiritual director is all about this interplay of shadows and light. So Eileen and I know good spiritual directors and would be glad to recommend one to you for you to try. And the church has money that's available to help pay the cost as well. And again, this podcast series that I've been quoting so much from the Center for Action and Contemplation, that is entirely free and it is so full of wisdom that we haven't even scratched the surface. So that's my spiel for today. I hope that you can see how this whole alternative orthodoxy thing is holding together. It's building. It's inviting us into the flow of God, opening us up to the resounding music of the cosmos. Next week's lesson, fair warning, it's a difficult one. The path of descent is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers. Happy Halloween, I guess. For today, a blessing from Jan Richardson, who has walked this path of shadow quite publicly herself. A blessing for traveling in the dark. Go slow if you can, slower, more slowly still. Friendly, dark, or fearsome, this is no place to break your neck by rushing, by running, by crashing into what you cannot see. Then again, it is true Different darks have different tasks, and if you have arrived here unawares, unawares, and if you have come in peril or in pain, this might be no place you should dawdle. I do not know what these shadows ask of you, what they might hold that means you good or ill. It is not for me to reckon whether you should linger or you should leave. But this is what I can ask for you, that in the darkness there will be a blessing, that in the shadows there will be a welcome, that in the night you be encompassed by the love that knows your name. Amen.